All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, it is Monday once again, and I am Pastor Doug Minton, which means it's time to stand in the confessional corner. And this week, this week, uh, Thanksgiving, we look at where we receive the great blessings of God, and that is in the sacraments. We talked for weeks now about the Word as one of the means of grace. Now we get to the sacraments, the other. But of course, there is a problem. First, what is a sacrament? And that determines how many sacraments are there. So we're going to look at Articles 13 and 14 this week about the sacraments. And what does a sacrament actually mean? We're going to start off in Article 13, paragraphs 1 and 2. In Article 13, the adversaries approve our statement that the sacraments are not just marks of profession among people, as some imagine. Rather, they are signs and testimonies of God's will toward us. Through them, God moves hearts to believe. But here they ask us to count seven sacraments. We hold that the matters and ceremonies instituted in the Scriptures, whatever the number, should not be neglected. Neither do we believe it to be of any consequence. However, for teaching purposes, different people do count differently, provided they still rightly keep the matters handed down in Scripture. The ancients also did not count in the same way. All right, so the question is, right off the bat, how many sacraments are there? Rome says there are seven. The Reformers, especially Melanchthon, will say, eh, there are two, maybe three. And we're not going to argue as to whether you are a three-sacrament Lutheran or you're a two-sacrament Lutheran. I personally am a three-sacrament Lutheran. And we'll get to that in just a second because it all goes to the definition. But Melanchthon says we don't have to agree on the number of sacraments. We need to agree on what a sacrament is. And that is there in paragraph 3. If we call sacraments rites that have, been, have the command of God and to which the promise of grace has been added, it is easy to decide what are true sacraments. For rites instituted by human beings will not be called true sacraments, for human authority cannot promise grace. Therefore, signs set up without God's command are not sure signs of grace, even those signs perhaps instruct the unlearned or admonish about something. Therefore, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and absolution, which is the sacrament of repentance, are truly sacraments. For these rites have God's command and the promise of grace, which is peculiar to the New Testament. When we are baptized, when we eat the Lord's body, when we are absolved, our hearts must be firmly assured that God truly forgives us for Christ's sake. At the same time, by the word and by the right, God moves hearts to believe and conceive faith, just as Paul says, faith comes from hearing, Romans 10, 17. But just as the word enters the ear in order to strike our heart, so the right itself strikes the eye in order to move the heart. The effect of the word and of the right is the same. It has been well said by Augustine that a sacrament is a visible word because the rite is received by the eyes and is, as it were, a picture of the word, illustrating the same thing as the word. The result of both is the same. All right, so what is a sacrament? How do the reformers, how do Lutherans define 
a sacrament. It is a rite commanded by God with a promise of grace. All right, so anything that has not been commanded by God that we can't find in scriptures cannot be a sacrament. Anything that may even be commanded by God that there is no promise of grace, well, that can't be a sacrament either. And that's where many of the other five or four that the Romans count falter. All right, so are there two sacraments or are there three? Melanchthon will say there are three. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and absolution. Now, when we teach confirmation, we teach the sacraments, we say there are three things that every sacrament has to have. A command by God, a promise of grace, and a visible element. This third criteria is where we have the difference between the two sacrament Lutherans and the three sacrament Lutherans. And this is probably nitpicking, but this is the difference. The two sacrament Lutherans do not believe that you can have a living, breathing element, whereas water is not living, bread and wine are not living. So the pastor who is saying the words of absolution as a living, breathing person, well, he cannot be the visible element that we need. My question is, why not? It is exactly there. And in fact, absolution is where we officially hear it with our ears that we are forgiven. How is that not a sacrament in some people's minds? Because I, as a living, breathing pastor, cannot be the element through which God works. Yet, I am the element that through which God works in order to preside over the Lord's Supper and celebrate and consecrate the elements. I am the one God has put here to do baptisms, to preach the word. Why do we draw the line at absolution? There's no need. Because the sacrament, as Augustine says, is a visible word. It is a word from God that you see with your eyes. You see the water being poured on the person being baptized. Or, even better in some people's minds, the person being immersed in water. Being buried with Christ in baptism. You see that. You see the bread and the wine. You touch it. The pastor, though. Oh, you see him. You shake hands with him before and after church, but you know, you know, that's a little different. That can't be the visible word. Well, why not? Because it, he, there is somebody visibly standing there speaking the word. I think that pretty much summarizes exactly being a visible word. But 
I can get on a tirade for this and we not get into the rest of it. Because we have to figure out why the other four fail the test for Melanchthon. And we start off with two of my favorites to knock down. Uh, paragraph six. Confirmation and extreme unction are rights received from the fathers that not even the church requires as necessary to salvation because they do not have God's command. Therefore, it is useful to distinguish these rights from the former, which have God's direct command and a clear promise of grace. Confirmation. Not in the Bible. Not commanded by God. Not necessary for salvation. Because, yes, you can be saved before confirmation. And for those who say, oh, no, 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 you have to be confirmed. I mean, you have to be confirmed to be saved. Tell that to the parents who have lost an 8-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old who hasn't started confirmation class yet. Tell that to the woman who has just given birth to a stillborn baby. That their children aren't saved because they weren't confirmed. On the other hand, extreme unction, last rites. Very wonderful thing. We have the service of the commendation of the dying, which I do say is the Lutheran version of last rites. There are people who cringe at that. But it's not that we are doing this in order to get you ready for Jesus to take you. And maybe it needs to be done because we do offer the option for confession and absolution if the person so desires. But it grounds a person's final moments in the promises of grace, in the promises that God has them in the palm of his hands and that they're not going anywhere without him. And it is the pastor's privilege to be there at the bedside to do that very service. But again, no command from God, no promise of grace given by having the service done. It's simply grounding the dying person and the family who is already beginning to mourn their passing grounding them in the promises of God. All right, paragraph 7 through, let's see, it keeps going for a while. 7 through 13, we have yet another one that is a great one. The adversaries understand priesthood, not about ministry of the word and giving out the sacraments to others, but as referring to sacrifice. This is as though there should be a priesthood like the Levitical one in Leviticus 8 and 9 to sacrifice for the people and merit the forgiveness of sins for others in the New Testament. We teach that the sacrifice of Christ dying on the cross has been enough for the sins of the whole world. There is no need for other sacrifices as though Christ's sacrifice were not enough for our sins. So people are justified not because of any other sacrifices, but because of this one sacrifice of Christ if they believe that they have been redeemed by this sacrifice. So they are called priests, not in order to make any sacrifices for the people as in the law, but that these, that by these they may merit forgiveness of sins for the people. Rather, they are called to teach the gospel and administer the sacraments to the people. 
nor do we have another priesthood like the Levitical, as the epistle to the Hebrews teaches well enough in chapter 8. But if ordination is understood as carrying out the ministry of the word, we are willing to call ordination a sacrament. For the ministry of the word has God's command and has glorious promises. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Romans 1.16. Likewise, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, Isaiah 55.11. If ordination is understood in this way, neither will we refuse to call the laying on of hands a sacrament. For the church has the command to appoint ministers, which should be most pleasing to us, because we know that God approves this ministry and is present in the ministry that God will preach and work through men and those whom he has been chosen by men. It is helpful so far as can be done to honor the ministry of the word with every kind of praise against fanatical people. These fanatics imagine that the Holy Spirit is not given through the word, but through certain preparations of their own. For example, they imagine he is given if they sit unoccupied and silent in far-off places waiting for illumination, as the enthusiasts formerly taught and the Anabaptists now teach. Rome's idea of the ministry is all about sacrifice. And we'll hear this over and over again in Article 24 on the sacrifice of the Mass, and that being the most important thing that a priest does. Because it is there that the priest merits the forgiveness of sins for the people. Because they also have the idea that the Levitical priest did that in the Old Testament. But if ordination and the ministry were actually centered around the teaching of the gospel, yes, we could consider ordination a sacrament. We could consider the laying on of hands as a sacrament because both have God's command to go and appoint pastors for places. And those pastors have words of great promise of grace. Not that your pastor will save you, but that your pastor shows you where your salvation, where your forgiveness is. The laying on of hands was how they showed that this person has been chosen. Very much like we look at the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 and the scapegoat having all of the sins of Israel confessed onto it by the laying on of the high priest's hands. That is the transference of the power of ordination. The well, not power, authority of ordination, which is why you also see in the Catholic Church and in the Anglican Episcopal Churches that you have a desire to keep with apostolic succession, that much like the Jews and the Mormons try to trace their ancestry all the way back to Adam physically, Every pastor ought to be able to trace their ordination back to one of the 12 apostles. I can't do that because, honestly, I couldn't tell you going back any further than maybe a couple of generations. I could probably find out who ordained the man who ordained me. 
I might be able to find the man who ordained him. But beyond that, no. I mean, who keeps records of that? I mean, we don't do that because it's not important. I mean, yes, does the person doing the ordination need the authority to do it? Absolutely. But that authority comes from the congregation calling the pastor to serve them, to be the one who administers the sacraments and preaches the gospel. All right, now we're going to move into paragraphs 14 and 15, and really the goofiest idea for what a sacrament is. Marriage was not first instituted in the New Testament, but in the beginning, immediately after the creation of the human race, Genesis 1, 28. Furthermore, it has God's command. It also has promises, not truly having to do with the New Testament, but rather having to do with bodily life. Therefore, if anyone wishes to call it a sacrament, he or she should still distinguish it from those preceding ones. They are truly signs of the New Testament and testimonies of grace and the forgiveness of sins. But if marriage has the name sacrament because it has God's command, other states or offices also which have God's command may be called sacraments, as, for example, the government. All right, if you're going to call marriage a sacrament, and yes, it has God's institution, the man and wife wear rings as visible elements of their bond with each other. And yes, there is a lot of forgiveness that goes on in marriage. But it's forgiveness between two sinners. It doesn't take away our guilt from God, but it does take away our guilt from each other. So, no. And also, it is instituted by God, but it is not commanded by God. God does not anywhere in the Bible command that everybody be married. And there are there are people who have no problem living a single life their entire life. I mean, if there were a command by God that everybody be married, we would be doing arranged marriages at birth, if not before birth. And sticking people with Spouses that they might not even like, which never works out. Sadly, sadly, many people take too much of the exterior as what is necessary in this life and not worry about what's actually inside a person, what a person is actually like. So no, there is no commandment that everybody must be married. Just like there is no promise that you have forgiveness from God for getting married. That's not there. Because this involves regular daily life. This is not about the gospel at all. All right, paragraph 16 and 17 now. Finally, if among the sacraments everything should be numbered that has God's command and to which promises have been added, why do we not add prayer, which most truly can be called a sacrament? For it has both God's command and very many promises. 
if numbered among the sacraments, although in a more prominent place, it would encourage people to pray. Alms could be counted here also, and likewise troubles. These are themselves signs to which God has added promises. But let us leave out these things, for no level-headed person will labor greatly about the number or the term, if only those things are still kept that have God's command and promises. Yeah, what about prayer? What about troubles and afflictions? What about the punishments we talked about last week that God allows so that he might exercise us in our faith? Those could also be sacraments if we want to stretch the definition. But we don't need to stretch the definition. Paragraph 18 tells us that. It's important to understand how the sacraments are to be used. Number doesn't matter. It's the use of the sacraments that is necessary. Here we condemn the whole crowd of scholastic doctors who teach that the sacraments give grace by the outward act without a good frame of mind on the part of the one using them, provided he does not place a hindrance in the way. This is absolutely a Jewish opinion to hold that we are justified by a ceremony without a good tendency of the heart, that is, without faith. Yet this ungodly and deadly opinion is taught with great authority throughout the entire realm of the Pope. Paul contradicts this and denies Romans 4.9, that Abraham was justified by circumcision. He asserts that circumcision was an illustration presented for exercising faith. So we teach that in the use of the sacraments, faith should be added. Faith should believe these promises and receive the promised things here offered in the sacrament. The reason is plain and thoroughly grounded. The promise is useless unless it is received by faith. The sacraments are the signs of the promises. Therefore, faith should be added in the use of the sacraments. If anyone uses the Lord's Supper, he should use it by faith. It is a sacrament of the New Testament, as Christ clearly says, Luke 22.20. For this very reason, he should also be confident that the free forgiveness of sins promised in the New Testament is offered. Let him receive this by faith. Let him comfort his alarmed conscience and know that these testimonies are not false. They are as sure as though, and still surer than if, God by a new miracle would declare from heaven that it was his will to grant forgiveness. What advantage would these miracles and promises be to an unbeliever? Here we speak of special faith that believes the present promise that the forgiveness of sins is offered. This use of the sacrament consoles godly and alarmed minds. We are not speaking of a faith that only in general believes that God exists. It is always more important to know how the sacraments are to be used than worry about the definition and number of the sacraments. Yes, the whole thing between the two and three sacrament Lutherans is not a big deal. It's how the sacraments are used. And they are used in faith. Faith that grasps hold of the promise of grace that is in them. Because promises require faith. A promise is no good unless you believe it. You sign a contract for a vehicle, a house, a job. You are promising that you will take care of what needs to be done on your end, and they are promising you money. Whether it is a loan for that car or that house, or it's a salary. 
those numbers mean nothing if you don't believe them. If you're if you're given a job promotion that gives you $120,000 a year for a salary and you don't believe it, what's the point of the promotion? I mean, you know, the promise of the salary increase is there for you to believe. And even greater, the promise of the forgiveness of your sins through Christ, that is what we must hold on to by faith. That is what the sacraments give us, that sign of the promise, a promise to be believed. We conclude Article 13 with just a few words. It is beyond words. What abuses the fanatical opinions about outward works has produced in the church without a good disposition on the part of the one using the sacraments. From it has come the endless profanation of the masses. We shall speak about this later. A single letter cannot be produced from the old writers that supports the scholastics in this matter. On the contrary, Augustine says the faith that uses the sacrament and not the sacrament justifies. And the declaration of Paul is well known. With the heart one believes and is justified. Romans 10.10. No, the sacraments, just by doing them, will not justify you. Faith in the promises given in the sacraments, those are what justify you. Those are where you find salvation. Are we going to quickly move into Article 14? Because in the Concordia, the Reader's Edition of the Lutheran Confessions, it just continues the paragraph numbering from 13 because there's not a new thing that is being brought about. So Article 14 talks about order in the church. In Article 14, we say that no one should administer the word and sacraments unless he is rightly called. The adversaries accept the article, but on the condition that we use canonical ordination. About the subject, we have often testified in the assembly that it is our greatest desire to keep church orders in ranks, even though they have been made by human authority. We know that church discipline in the manner laid down in the ancient canons was set up by the fathers for a good and useful purpose. But the bishops either urge our priests to reject and condemn the doctrine we have confessed, or by a new and unheard of cruelty they put the poor innocent men to death. These causes hinder our priests from recognizing such bishops. The cruelty of the bishops is the reason why the canonical government, which we greatly desire to keep, is dissolved in some places. Let them see how they will answer to God for tearing apart the church. In this matter, our consciences are not in danger. Since we know that our confession is true, godly, and Catholic, we should not approve the cruelty of those who persecute this doctrine. We know that the church is among those who teach God's word rightly and administer the sacraments rightly. The church is not with those who try hard to wipe out God's word by their orders and also put to death those who teach what is right and true. Toward them, even the very canons are gentler, even though they do something contrary to the canons. Furthermore, we want to declare again that we will gladly keep church and canonical government so long as the bishops stop attacking our churches. Our request will acquit us, both before God and among all nations forever, from the charge that we have undermined the authority of the bishops. People will acquit us when they read and hear that although protesting against the unrighteous cruelty of the bishops, we could not obtain justice. 
Article 14 in the Augsburg Confession says that no one may preach in the church unless they are rightly called. That there is an order to the church and the hierarchy. And Luther didn't want to get rid of the hierarchy. He didn't mind having the pope as long as the pope did not say he was the head of the church by divine right. And did not undermine the work of those beneath him, but instead would strengthen them by supporting them. But no, he sends out the bishops to gather armies to wipe out the Lutherans. This is what was going on in 1531 when Melanchthon is writing this. There are places in Germany and throughout the Holy Roman Empire that are being wiped out for not confessing faith in the Pope, not confessing the Roman doctrine. And that is why, in many places, the hierarchy has been done away with. There are no bishops and archbishops and cardinals and all of that. There's just simply pastors. And even in America, we had the same thing. We're trying to figure out what to do when the Saxon immigrants came, they started off with the state church idea that you had a bishop on top, very much like the Pope. But he was the first among equals like the Pope was supposed to be. Well, the guy they had was not the best for the Saxons. And so they set up more democratic way that we have a synodical president and he has vice presidents that covered various regions of the country, and then we have districts set up that are further subdivided of those regions, and then those are broken down and broken down. Not because we want some great big hierarchy, but because we want the support of brothers and sisters in Christ. We want to have that place to see that God is working not just here, but we have a common bond with the church down the road and that they believe the same thing, not just because they say it, but because we are joined together. In Synod, we are walking together, which is the word there. Is it perfect? No, it is not perfect. It will never be perfect because, well, the guys we elect to those offices are sinners. Pure and simple. And I remember when President Matthew Harrison, the president of the Missouri Synod, was elected to office the first time. He said the Missouri Synod had kept a perfect record of electing a sinner to be the Senate president. But then again, if we waited for somebody who was perfect, we'd all die waiting because there is no one perfect. We're all sinners, and we simply do the best we can. The reformers were simply just wanting the bishops to not threaten them with war and with death and forced divorce. But we'll get on to that uh, further on as we talk about monastic vows and some of the other distinctions that were made that are covered in the abuses section at the end of the apology, just like they were in the Augsburg Confession. I'm going to wrap it up for this week as we get ready for Article 15 next week. I wish you a very 
Happy Thanksgiving. I hope you are able to get together with friends and relatives and truly give thanks for what God has given you. And not just around the table on Thursday as you say the prayer before devouring the turkey. But go to church. Whether it's Wednesday night or Thursday morning, go to church. Sing the praises and thanksgiving hymns to God for all that he has done. Hear once again the word that came in the flesh. He is the one we give thanks to. He is the one we give thanks for. And he is the one that on our last day will raise us up and let us be by him as long as we stay in the faith. And that's why this podcast exists, to give you a better understanding of the Bible, of the Lutheran faith and the confessions, so that you may wrestle with all the theologies out there in the world that cause you to not want to give thanks to God, that want to take you away from Jesus into anything else. So I hope you'll be back next week for the Confessional Corner. Be here on Thursdays, even Thanksgiving Thursday, for digging deeper into the Psalms. And until next time, this is Pastor Doug Minton wishing you once again God's richest blessings as you wrestle with theology.